0: the only politics that it's worth investing in is an inclusive politics that seeks to make a difference to the lives of everybody. Welcome to Surviving Society with
1: Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis,
2: executively produced by Georgia Foree Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
1: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.
2: Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society podcast. We're actually back with our main episode um, for the first time in quite a few weeks as we've had our reflection series over the summer period. We are really excited today, though, to be back in the studio and to be joined by Gaminda Bambra, Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the University of Sussex, and John Holmwood, who is emeritus. Do you ever read it? I'm always like, how do you pronounce it? I'm like uh... (laughs) Emeritus. (laughs) as Professor of Sociology at the University of Nottingham, Gaminda and John have both been on the podcast before, but never together. So this is really exciting. It is. And you might be able to hear in our voice, guys, and we usually say this. We don't want to embarrass John and Gaminda, but me and Tiso are really, really excited, (laughs) but also really nervous. We've got like the giants in the room today. What we're going to be talking about is John and Gaminda's latest book, Colonialism and Modern Social Theory. You'll be able to find the link to the book in the episode notes. Thank you so much
0: for joining us. Oh, real pleasure. (laughs) Really Um, pleased to be here.
1: Good book, by the way.
0: <laughs> <a good> book. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Um, John, can you outline what you mean by colonialism being a precursor to empire?
0: I think in a way, I mean, in the context of thinking about the book, colonialism and modern social theory, what we wanted to do was to think about the way in which people who we recognise as part of the canon of social theory don't just exist on their own. They're part of histories, they're involved in making history, and they're located in particular sorts of events, processes, and so on. And one of the things that had sort of, I guess, bothered us both in terms of reading these people's thought and reading commentaries on them was how rarely people had taken into account, the times in which people were writing, and the things that were going on that they themselves even talk about, you know, so the early thinkers in the book, Locke, Hobbes, etc., they're talking about colonial processes, because those are the processes that are significant at the time that they're writing. And yet somehow those get airbrushed out of the histories that then get told about these people or the way in which we think about their work. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was to think about how those colonial processes were significant for the ideas that they developed, and then think about how and why those processes get airbrushed out of our understandings of these people. But thinking about the link from colonialism to empire, I'll pass over to John.
3: Yes, I think the the striking thing is we think of sociology as a relatively late developing subject, within the uh, social sciences. It's frequently uh, associated from you know the mid uh, 19th century and then a high point of which people talk about the classics of Weber and Durkheim, the late uh, 19th century. That is absolutely the high point of European uh, empire. European empire is about to move in the lifetimes of Weber and Durkheim to a cataclysmic First World War around imperial issues with uh, soldiers from empire, not simply it's not simply a war Britain, France, Germany soldiers from it all engaged within it, and yet this is a marginal subject within their writings until they're right in the midst of the, of the war, and then they're caught up in the general jingoism and nationalism that war. Uh, imposes upon uh, a domestic population. So partly was reflected well, how can imperialism be so important and yet be something that isn't really centrally reflected? And there has to be something that leads up to it. So there has to be a set of processes through which it develops. And it's, you know, colonialism gives rise to imperialism. So The question is to say, well, how is colonialism understood in the emergence of modernity, then high modernity empire? And what you notice is that colonialism is presented almost as if it's the last stages of feudalism. Early commercial society, not really uh, important, if you like, as uh, a set of events in the uh, 16th and early 17th centuries but not really definitional and that's because uh, sociology and other disciplines take on the idea of stages of society from feudalism to commercial society but commercial society comes to be understood as capitalist society and as capitalist society almost to have endogenous or processes internal to nations that generates commercial capitalist enterprise and so on. And that then goes outwards. So empire comes in as capitalism is going outwards. But the outwards, (laughs) where the outside, was always absolutely integral. So the first thing was to trace how colonialism was a continuous feature of the context of the emergence of modernity, and consequently, capitalism was misrepresented.
0: Mill, for example, 90% of Mill's writings are actually on India. Only 10% are on democracy. But if you look at commentary and scholarship on Mill, 90% of that is on the 10% of his writings on democracy and civil society rather than on India. So the way in which scholars pick up on particular themes over time comes to construct what it is that we imagine they were writing about, whereas the work of somebody like Uday Singh Mehta, who wrote the book Liberalism and Empire, he's highlighting the fact that if you go back to Mill's writings and look at them, then you'll see that he was concerned with this. So one of the things that we had wanted to do in the book as well was not just simply to say, oh, look, these people never wrote about colonialism because often they did write about colonialism. They did reflect upon it. We may disagree with what their reflections were, but we can't just simply say that they didn't talk about these things. The issue is partly why does the fact that they did write about it come to disappear by the 2020s when we're reading secondary works on them who only ever talk about them in an insular and parochial way rather than actually engaging with the expansiveness of what it is that they were writing at the time. So that was one of the things that we really wanted to do was to sort of say it would be quite odd if they didn't reflect on these issues because these were so significant at that time and they did write on them. What did they say and how did what they say come to be constructed and thought about subsequently and what was that process of in inverted commas purification that was going on what was that associated with so that's then associated with the project of the nation that's such a good point Gaminda. and I guess what means is what I mean and you've
2: just clarified that is was it deliberate that we have read these thinkers in this way
3: I think it's partly to do with our context if we say one thing about The book which, you know, the title echoes Giddens's Capitalism and Modern Social Theory. It's exactly 50 years since uh, Giddens wrote that book. So one of the things that's interesting to say is what was happening in sociology at the time that led Giddens to write capitalism and modern social theory, what's happening in our times that lead us to write colonialism and modern social theory. It's not to say that Giddens was wrong. He's a product of his time. We're a product of our time in ways which we will discover, uh, you know, in the future. But uh, when Giddens was writing, the interesting thing is colonialism or the issue of colonialism is there in the context when Giddens is writing. So the interesting thing is why can't British sociology notice it? then, and what project is it setting for sociology <clears throat> at that time, and why would Britain be organizing itself around the nation at that time? Now, when I say this, you're, it's going to say, wow, that's obvious. It's the moment of decolonization, of Britain losing its empire. So the thought is, what is Britain to be after empire. And sociology in Britain at that time, I think, sets itself a modernizing project, but it sets itself as a modernizing project under the uh, theme of class and, you know, in a sense, a social democratic project for the nation rather than under issues that would incorporate race, ethnicity, the legacy of empire. So it's almost as if Uh, sociology wishes to see itself projected forward and can't find a way of how can we make our projection forward adequate to the past and how can we come to understand that the past actually structures what's possible in the future not only what's possible what but what it would be right to organize in the future so I think the end of empire in europe is quite important for the post second world war generation of sociology which was one of the period of the great growth of sociology for sociology to neglect empire because empire is over
0: i mean i agree with that and i would also want to just say that i think the idea of the nation however or the idea of a national project is something that is longer standing than simply a post second world war period that's when it gains It's sort of, uh, again, inverted commas, it's reality, because now, because of decolonization, there is no empire, there is just the nation. But even when there was an empire, scholarship was oriented to the idea of the nation as somehow constituting a polity that was separate from empire. And so you could then organize your understandings within the nation and think that that is something different to what is going on elsewhere. And so that project of separation, despite all the connections, I think is a longer standing project that sociology just fits itself into then.
1: Yeah. When you said the idea of separation all the time, from the book, this seems to be a constant thing, like the kind of invention of the state of nature to describe the kind of coming of commercial society. It's often quoted like the state of nature. Like if we was in the state of nature, life would be nasty, brutish, and short. Everyone knows that quote, right? But it's quite interesting how.
2: Hang on, hang on, listeners don't. Who's, what's quote? Is that T. Say? Thomas Hobbs, man. Hobbs, no, man. Um,
1: and I don't know, it, it just struck me that even the idea of commercial society is an invention. When I'm reading those thinkers in your book, they're almost kind of exalting their own society that they're living in. So they're just talking about their own times. When you're talking about your own times and you're kind of grappling with questions of how does society begin, you have to pick a point, right? And they just pick a point to them, and I think this is quite interesting when you're talking about the, the kind of voyages discovery. So when they're seeing, so when they're traveling, they're seeing space and time. So when they're looking mm-hmm. at other nations, they're seeing the past yeah. like a mirror. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. That makes sense. If you're to, if you see yourself as modern or this thing is very, as novel, this could possibly be you at some point in time.
2: I think, and I think just to sort of clarify as well, like this is sort of towards the earlier part of the book when you're yeah. talking about the discovery, like the discoveries mm. of the Americas mm. and sort of asserting that the Americas themselves are part of a European settler project mm. and what that actually meant for these people to come and go like and go there and the levels of amnesia that we have within how our scholarship develops, but also a lack of sort of, understanding of of the extent of that as well but i was also
1: going to add like it ties into kind of that that how it affects our modern sensibility there is still a kind of line that people when they see people from developing countries that this is how we could be right Mm. we don't want to regress so one of the lines of the national front is that africa is like it's behind the times Mm. europe is but this is always this it's a constant thing that runs through a european kind of line of thought that
2: listens he got in the far right, I think. Always. Always, always. <laughs> bringing in the <laughs> far right. I think it's. I think that's a record. See, is that the first 10 always. minutes me, you've got in
0: the Always talking about the enemy on this show, as in what they say or no, how they use... I mean, one of the things around the idea of progress is that the idea of progress had to be brought into being in order to justify the processes that were going on because in a sense you know what you have in the early movement of Europeans to the lands that come to be known as the Americas is initially processes of trade and commercial exchange and so on and then very quickly processes of um, dispossession annihilation and settlement upon those territories and so on so how do you begin to justify that? One of the ways in which it was justified was to say that by traveling across space, Europeans thought that they were always also traveling back in time and that the people they encountered in these new lands were their ancestors. Why was it important for them to think of these people as their ancestors? Because it meant that they were their future, that the Europeans were the future of these people. And if the Europeans embodied the future, then it didn't matter if you annihilated these people because they were the past anyway. So it becomes a form of justification for the dispossession that goes on. And that is something that runs right through to development studies in the present, because there are no developing countries. There are countries that were formerly colonized Mm -hmm. and have been made poor as a consequence of these processes. But to not acknowledge the role of colonialism in the construction of developing countries is what naturalizes poverty and makes it then seem, oh, well, we can just help them because we're good people. Mm-hmm. No, if we recognise that these are formally colonised countries, then they're poor because we, as formally colonising countries, are rich through that same process. So we could think about it in terms of redistribution of a different yeah. form. But did you want to add no, no, to just I think before? I before?
3: agree entirely. I was going to go you know, slightly off into another tack to say, yes, what they always say is, state of nature, and then they say, but of course the state of nature is a fiction, Mm. to think of what the state of society was like, but insofar as there is anybody close to the state of nature, then these are the people who are living close uh, to the state of nature. Part of what we wanted to do in the book was to say, the state of society is a fiction, Mm. and to, in a sense, develop and extend the idea of the fictions that we use to organize our thinking and what the consequence of those fictions are in the lives of others. And I think what makes uh, colonialism so important in the modern, or the legacy of colonialism so important in the the modern day, it is the primary uh, process of the taking of land into possession the creation of a private property right in land that transcends the claims of those who live in the area that is taken into position. And it asserts that the rule of law is about affirming the property right in land. That in some ways, although we think of, well, capitalism has incredible consequences for global warming in terms of the consumption of um, you know, carbon and so on. But most of the things that are being consumed have to be extracted from the land through private property. So colonialism is absolutely, and the uh, institutions it brings into the modern world is absolutely central to understanding the current climate crisis.
2: I'm just going to read a quote from the book about the extent of the land and extraction. So, across the 19th century, around 60 million Europeans left their countries of origin to make new lives and livelihoods for themselves on lands inhabited by others. Each new cohort of Europeans was allocated land at the edges of the territory that had already been settled. This was done in order to extend political control over contested border territories. In this way, Europeans from across the continent participated in the elimination and dispossession of the populations that preceded them and were thus complicit in the settler colonial project. At least 7 million Germans moved to these lands, to the United States in the north and to Brazil and Argentina in the south, becoming by the late 19th century one of the largest immigrant groups in the north of the Americas. Large-scale Polish emigration started in the period after the Franco-Prussian War in the late 19th century. By the turn of the 20th century, nearly 2 million Polish people had moved to the Americas, while about 300,000 Polish colonists went to Brazil, another settler colony by 1939. Two million subjects of the dual monarchy of Austria Hungary travelled to the Americas, as did more than eight million Irish people. One million of the latter left as a result of the mid century famine caused by British colonial rule. By 1890, nearly one million Swedes, one fifth of the total Swedish population, were living in lands colonised by and as the United States. In addition, 13.5 million British people moved to white settlement colonies across the globe. Wow. We were talking about this, that quote, like before we started recording. And that's, that, that won't be all the numbers.
1: How I've kind of encountered that in, in modern life is when people tell me, go back to where you're from. Mm. But no one in those colonised countries will say to a European, of a European entry go back to where you're from. It's yeah. just, it's not thought of that. It just seems natural. They go, where they go is natural. But you being here in imperial centre, it's not natural. You go back. Yeah. And that that, that to me, that's what I find is interesting.
3: Yeah, there's also, I mean, there's another political purpose in setting that out is before when we've spoken about this to European audience, say in Sweden or to, you know, audience, Hungary, you know, uh, know, uh, Eastern uh, Europe, Europe, they say, well, we never, we were never part of colonization. That's an issue of France. That's an issue of Belgium. That's an issue Mm. of Britain said, no, Europe generally, through its population movement, participated in a form of emigrationist colonialism, of going to other places as part of the process of imposing a particular system of rule and law on those other places, and imposing a system that actually excluded those who were already there. There's not a single immigrant that comes to Britain or to other European country, except to to participate in the society as it is, not to transform it into something completely different. And if
0: I can just add one other thing, I mean, you were talking earlier about sort of exclusions, omissions and how things sort of shift over time. If you look across uh, migration studies as a discipline or a field of study, All articles and and books, etc., that talk about the movement of populations, of European populations across the nineteenth century, do it under the broad label the age of free migration. That's what the nineteenth century movement of Europeans is termed as, because it was seen that the majority of them moved to the Americas and the Americas were seen to have open border policies what they forget or fail to take into account was that if the eastern edges of the Americas were open, the only reason they were open to the movement of Europeans was because of earlier waves of Europeans who had gone and dispossessed the existing populations, taken over their lands and established a new state. And so in that sense, the argument that sort of have been making is this argument that those Europeans who move in the 19th century are not migrants, they're settler colonists, and we can't understand the movement of Europeans in the 19th century as migration and make that equivalent to the movement of populations in the present as mm-hmm. migration. Mm-hmm. They're not the same thing. They're fundamentally different, and mm-hmm. we need to acknowledge that.
3: And it's particularly important in the context uh, of, you mentioning uh, far-right arguments. Far-right arguments are about white replacement, about, settler colonialism into Europe. So they are appropriating, misappropriating, the language of colonialism as a discourse of nationalism and exclusion without taking account of what the European history of colonial has been. Part of the book in discussing the nature of uh, imperialism and particularly in the in the work of uh, uh, Weber is to discuss how uh, Weber is interested in a process of germanification. So Germany in unifying in most of the discussions treat German ger- the unification of Germany as a formation of, na- of a nation state, but it's a formation of an ethnic nation state and also a nation state that is seeking to exp- expand its borders. Uh, eastward, in order to claim lands which are, you know, part of Poland uh, 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 and so on, and also south into Africa as well. So we do treat the eastern and southern uh, uh, processes of German expansion as part of the same process of. Colonialism and the process of Germanification is directed towards Jews, it's directed towards Poles, towards Catholics against Protestants, and so on. And that language is infused in uh, Weber's texts. Uh, you know one of the thing that struck me is uh, going back to read the Protestant ethics study when we were writing about Weber and thinking oh, just go back and check you know we thought we knew what it was <laughs> was about but let's go back and check. Page one is a discussion you know a frankly racist discussion of poles and the relation of Germany to poles in the context of a project of Germanification. That's page one of uh, the Protestant Mm. Ethics Study. And the tendency is, let's just turn the page quickly until the books, and then the book properly starts. In Weber's terms, the book properly started as an explanation of why Protestantism was associated with the spirit of freedom, Catholicism was not, and that was also associated with ethnic um, identification in, in Poland. So he, his language around Poles is, you know, is it's quite yeah. yeah, quite racist. strongly. Yeah. yeah, racist. But this,
1: this is that's, what you just said, John, is amazing because the book wouldn't have started proper until pages in. Yeah. So it's talking about like progress or rationality, whatever it will yeah. be. That's what you're looking for. Mm. But these are key themes that you've been told to look out for. Mm. So you just kind of, almost, you see it but you, you skim past it.
2: Next question that I wanted to ask you refers to thinking about private property, possession and the early liberal thought. When it comes to talking about the canon on this show, Tiso and I do get a bit nervous because we often feel like it's intimidating. No, 100% um, it's intimidating. It's
1: intimidating. Like, intimidating and... It's like, I guess, when people say, oh, have you read Jane Austen or have you read Wuthering Heights? Oh, I always read, well, some people have. But well, a lot but, of people have, <laughs> but, but like... You know, not in that kind of textual detail to kind yeah, of yeah. have commentary on it. So... I think there's always an apprehension about the canon because over time they've become lofty almost abstract right so there's there is a kind of trepidation when approaching them
2: so gaminda why cover the canon and why should we why should we feel as scholars less intimidated by the canon and more i guess critical about the canon
0: well i think the issue about the canon is partly that Over time, these are people who have come to be recognised as having contributed something to establishing a discipline. And so the discipline of sociology largely organises itself around these particular thinkers. There are omissions, as we sort of point out, there are contingencies, all this sort of stuff. But For us, the issue wasn't so much about critiquing the canon in its own terms, i.e. who's included, who's not, and other people should be included. I mean, one of the lines of critique within sort of post-colonial or decolonial thought is very much to sort of say, well, there are other people who've also thought. And our position is partly, well, yes, there are other people who've also thought and we should learn what we can from them and include them and engage with their thought. And still, there is a discipline that organises itself in particular ways around particular thinkers, but more importantly than it being those thinkers, the discipline organises itself around the concepts and categories that these thinkers have in a sense bequeathed to us as the discipline. And so even if we were to forget Marx, Weber, Durkheim, and focus on other thinkers, those thinkers themselves would often be engaging with the very same concepts and categories, but in different locations. What we're concerned with is that actually the shape of those concepts have been formed by colonialism and we fail to recognize it. And so the extent to which, and we attribute their formation to modernity. And if we fail to recognise that colonialism is a central part of modernity, then we fail to recognise that the concepts themselves occur in that context. And so what we're arguing for is the need to transform the concepts and categories of sociology. We're less concerned with the figures themselves.
3: Canon is a canon because it's a shorthand. And something is a shorthand because it becomes easy to think with. And easy to think with is how it's passed on, and that's a comment you made earlier about how, you know, we, we've we just somehow imbibed this. Well, you've imbibed it through the process of, of canon formation. So part of what it is, is unpicking to show that there are lots of different threads there. You can pull on those threads and arguments will unravel. When those arguments unravel, those are the places where other positions can have their space created. So if you simply said, well, let's add other writers to the canon, it's as if the space they have is to be a chapter on their own, not to be a consequence for how we uh, think because they've been brought into a critical conversation. So part of what we wanted to do was uh, break up how, Uh, these thinkers are thought to make possible other kinds of conversations, not to supply those other conversations, but to do the initial uh, work of, well, let's just unpick. And the final thing I say is that actually it, you know, I think we did both find it was incredibly good fun. So one of the things I hope is that the book reads as if it's important to do this, but it's also enjoyable to do this because there's something invigorating about it. It's not saying, so when you say the abstract, it's not telling you this is what you must agree with. It's saying this is how we can approach these thinkers, break them open, and that creates more space for everybody to think with them and to think with them differently.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it made me excited again because mm-hmm. you weren't just retreading the same kind of ideas over and over again. You looked at the idea again, but with a, it's like almost like a new lens. Mm-hmm. And, and you're thinking, oh, so that's a different way of looking at it.
2: But do you think that, I don't know, something sort of anecdotally, listening to you both talk then about sort of the, the canon and what it means to like actually return to the people that have been the most prominent people? prominent within our disciplines sort of anecdotally do you think sometimes people use Du Bois to kind of put a plaster over like the the emissions we've been talking about obviously we are big fans of Du Bois on this show but like sometimes I think I've seen it it when I'm looking at other undergraduates or um, students that speak mm. to us about how Du Bois is used. Like Du Bois is obviously incredible, but sometimes it kind of gets used as a way to sort of like say, OK, well, we've done that. We've ticked that box type thing.
0: Yeah, no, mm. absolutely. And that was what when we were thinking about the book and thinking about how we brought it together. We really didn't want to include Du Bois for the sake of including Du Bois, but actually to use both his life and his work to think about the ways Or what it says about sociology, because in a way, what it says about sociology is that he was the most remarkable of thinkers. He absolutely contributed to, if not founded, the discipline of sociology in the U.S. through the work, the empirical work that he does early on with the Philadelphia Negro. And then the work that he does subsequently with Souls of Black Folk, but more importantly, Black Reconstruction and goes on to do in color and democracy and so on. And despite both the volume of his work and the quality of his work, he is never engaged with by white sociologists in the US in a systematic way. There are a few who do appreciate him and engage with him. But the tradition of sociology as it comes to be established in the US establishes itself in terms of conversations that occur between white sociologists, some of whom draw upon Du Bois's work but never cite it, so there's an elision in those terms. And so now if we're thinking, well, okay, so we should recognise Du Bois as a sociologist, as people are beginning to say now, and we're, we're like, yes, absolutely. But in recognising Du Bois as a sociologist, we can only do it by recognising the failure of sociology to have recognised him for 100 years. You can't just say, let's include him now. To include him now would be to undo shine a spotlight on the inadequacies of US sociology over the century that it failed to engage with him and to make that part of the story. And then to think about, well, how would sociology look differently if we had taken Du Bois seriously from when he was writing? Mm I love that so much, Gaminda, because it reminds
2: me, thinking more locally, like how British sociology, what it looks like now, the emissions we see now, but also that the failure of people in the US to engage with Du Bois at that time and then understanding that as part of his scholarship as well. I think you can see a lot of similarity to the way people of colour, black people that have produced scholarship in Britain in sociology. There's a lot to learn about that process of, yeah, Du Bois not being taken seriously and how that then relates to what's happened here.
3: It is extraordinary because if I said to you, well, when would you date American sociology from? You'd say, well, the start of the 20th century, let's say. When is a big high point of American sociology? Well, 1940s post-war period onwards. When did American higher education institutions stop being segregated?
2: And doesn't this remind you of Goffman as well? And thinking about Imogen's book, mm-hmm. when she's got the student she found mm-hmm. in the archives, a student saying to Goffman, teaching yeah. stigma during segregation yeah. and during the Black Power movement of students. Does this does stigma relate to our experience? And Goffman gets like shook and is like, mm-hmm. oh, what are you talking about? Like, as in
3: Goff- can't, Goffman can't... is writing when the academy is still segregated. So
1: It's mad, so, isn't it? It's it's like, this book here, is it only possible to write this book now, given that we're in these current events? They're not going to speak about those things because they're in it, right?
2: Is it having distance away from what was happening? No,
1: like Black Lives Matter and all these things are up in the air. This is the zeitgeist now. This book has its moment now. This is its place in history. So this is why we're talking about these things right now. Just like you said when you're talking about Giddens Mm. and the kind of the national project Mm. he was involved in, colonialism was the big thing, but it that wasn't the issue of the moment.
0: Or it was, but no decolonization
1: was the other way around, right? Yeah.
0: I mean I think there's possibly a couple of things. I mean one is that if we think about Britain, Britain now has at least a couple of generations of people who have come from formerly colonised countries, who have lived here, have been born here, have grown up here, have come to understand their histories, not necessarily through what they were taught at school, but from what they learned from their parents telling them that, or supplementary schools, or doing their own research to figure out, well, you know, I'm here, but nobody recognises me as being of here, so what's going on? And trying to figure that out. So you've got people who are committed to understanding their place, not as an isolated individual narrative. Think about the structures that have produced them as that. So I think that's one of the things, and that's definitely part of what makes something like that possible. But I think also on a more sort of personal account, we spent a year in the States, and that was the year it was 50 years since the civil rights acts had been passed there were there were a lot of cultural events that were happening in the states then to celebrate 50 years of civil rights you know so there were plays there was music there was jazz there was all this sort of stuff and there was a reemergence of protest because um, the repeal
3: of the voting rights amendment act that was and, happening yeah. yeah and then ferguson
0: ferguson you know and then and so there was a lot of politics that was right there and we were in this sort of community of scholars with white Americans African Americans other Europeans and and other colleagues from other parts of the world as well and we're trying to figure out like what's going on so we know some of this stuff intellectually but to feel it viscerally on the streets and we would try and chat to colleagues about it And in the end, we discovered that at lunchtimes, people would sort of not want to sit next to us because we were asking all these difficult (laughs) questions. And the only people who ended up talking to us and who became friends with were African-American colleagues and other Europeans who were there because we were sort of trying to... um, And I think that was really quite formative in terms of reassessing what we had learned and knew in the British context. And again, knowing it... In a particular way, and then being confronted by the absolute visceral racial politics that is the US and it is Britain as well. So, I'm not yeah. trying to say that it's not, but somehow when you live here, you get accustomed to how things are. And when you're put in another situation, you see something. But
3: I think that that was the aspect of with our, you know, some of our American colleagues sitting there and thinking, why are they not seeing this? Why do they not? get it and then think, well, you know, we can see it in the States. It's very, mm-hmm. what are we not seeing in the... In Britain. In Britain. So that said, so before we accuse our colleagues in America mm-hmm. of not seeing something, there must be something we're not seeing something. And, you know, for me, what happened at the, when I was, out, that's when I, I was in the States, at That trip when I first got contacted by teachers from the Trojan Horse School, I thought, Yeah, that's what we're not, you know, that's what I'm not seeing is it's not coming up as uh, race in the same way in Britain. It's also coming up as religion and, uh, you know, the the issue Mm -hmm. around the uh, pathologizing of Islam and and so on. And and so, uh, you know, just to, to be aware that there's a set of processes that derived from colonialism, but they play out in different ways and to actually be conscious of the differences in the way they play out in relation to a common origin as well as to say, well, everything is about colonialism. Well, yes, it is, but there's different manifestations. And I think in relation to the book, that's why I was particularly excited by Durkheim because although he's seen as the most... uh, conservative figure and therefore perhaps the less the least sympathetic for most you know people you know dealing with the the classics. Durkheim is the one who's conscious of the issue of religion the Jewish question he has a better approach to the Jewish question obviously partly because of his background as, as a Jew than does Marx or Weber and it's possible to say to him well, why didn't you notice the Muslim question mm. Mm. because you' you're your writing right in the middle of the relation of uh, of the colonial relation of france with with Algeria so to it's not only to think, well, we're reading these authors just to find fault with them, but also to find you know some of the spaces you open up are spaces of you know new possibilities for thinking about you know current questions. And for Durkheim, I think it's uh, everybody thinks he's a secularist, but really he's anxious to establish the significance of religion. And he's writing that secularism really is a form of religion. Ah, he's writing about the relationship between religion and secularism as if it was an interfaith relation. Wouldn't that be powerful? In contemporary France to in a sense say secularism is not the other of religion it is one of religion's forms so let's think about religion and secularism as a relation between faiths and paradoxically interfaith dialogue is relatively easy dialogue from faith to secularism is less easy and here's Durkheim telling us well, we could possibly do that once we see secularism differently.
2: this It's like, you know, when we spoke to John about the Trojan horse, it's making me, do you know, when I realised like, how pernicious secularism was, like, I've just had one of those moments again, like, it's just, it's an issue.
1: Yeah, that's sick, man.
3: Secularism is okay. The problem it's is really it's self-understanding of itself as truth and rather than it's self-understanding it self as a belief equivalent to other beliefs. And therefore the issue is, how do we reconcile those different beliefs and say, Mm. well, there's a different version of secularism, which is how to manage the relationship amongst belief, including the belief in the necessity of doing—that's what Durkheim's humanism, I think, is is about.
2: We do get people write like message us about um, various episodes, and I would say that some of the big critiques that we get are from what we do or what we talk about on the show—is our lack of taking seriously um, Marxism. I love this chapter in the book so much because I just think it really helped me come to terms with some of the things, some of the issues that I have sometimes Mm -hmm. with Marx. I'm just going to read a couple of bits. There are many criticisms that can be mounted against Marx's treatment of class struggle, and a great deal of effort among those inspired by it has been devoted to dispelling them. At its simplest, Marx's theory was a poor account of history of wage differences. What he regarded as conventional differences, for example, those associated with gender or race, has remained remarkably resistant to the solvent of commodification. Moreover, forms of employment appear to have grown more differentiated. As Abraham Harris first indicated, and it was precisely this differentiation, not anticipated by Marx, that created the conditions for various kinds of inequalities in opportunities for access to jobs or different qualities. That, like, paragraph in itself, like, really helps, like, when we have people come to us, like, it's about capitalism, it's about this, like, and we've been saying on the show more recently, it's not as simple as that. And I think having a kind of generous critique of Marx actually helps us to find new ways of using Marx's theory.
0: I mean, if I sort of say something broadly, and then perhaps you can pick up on the Abrahams uh, section more, is that, One of the things that we were keen to do in sort of thinking about Marx was to think about how does he conceptualise capitalism? How is it organised? So he presents it in terms of the relationship between capital and labour. And the labour is the wage labourer, effectively. And yet, even at the time that Marx is writing, you have a system of labour that exists in the world that isn't simply wage labor, but is bonded labor, coerced labor, enslaved labor, and and so on. And we were interested in thinking about, well, if we took the laborer seriously and the fact that whilst he talks about labor being commodified, actually, for much of the time that he's writing, the laborer themselves are commodified. And how does that change what it is that we need to understand about the dynamic in order to be able to intervene within it? Because if we see it just in those narrow terms of capital and labor... And then we think that the resistance to capitalism will come from labour. Well, that's not taking into account the ways in which this broader system, again, we can call it colonialism, supports the possibility of wage labour. So one of the things that I found most interesting in reading Du Bois and thinking about sort of these issues in terms of the ways in which Du Bois engages with them is that he has a critique in his later work about the fact that welfare in the West, particularly in Europe, is bought or paid for by the enslaved and coerced labor that's continuing to go on in the colonial world. And so the struggles that are going on within Europe for welfare, for better conditions and etc can only be won because they're being paid for by others. And Marx is in a way, if you like, only looking or Marxists often only look at that relationship. they don't locate it. Within the broader global context, to think about how welfare in Europe is actually paid for, and so that was one of the things I guess a broader uh, mm. account.
3: Yeah, and if you think of um, the the feature of how Marxists approach Marx and what Marx is saying, and I think what Marx was arguing was plausible. So I'm not making we're not making any claim that his approach was unscientific or ideological and so on, that there was reasons to believe things were developing the way they were. But Marx's framing of it is, well, there are all these varieties of ways in which uh, individuals and groups are bound in to labour processes, but there's an overarching tendency of the labour process, which is dissolving all these different ways to produce one dominant way that's under the capital labor relation and the commodification of labor power and then there will be an unfolding and development of that relation and that unfolding and development of that relation will bring us to the future so all the time the. You know, people say, well, Marx was very aware of the terrible conditions of, you know, weavers in India and and so on. Yes, he was, but all the time he was placing them in a context. And once their petty forms of uh, work relationship are overcome, then we'll be moved into the, you know, into the future, which will have this form. So it's there's a a phrase that... uh, use it tightly coupled and loosely coupled. Marx believes the relations of capitalism are tightly coupled, and if that's the version of tight coupled bringing you into the future. But if they're loosely coupled, then all sorts of other consequences, Mm -hmm. the spaces for other activists, so you can continue to say, ah, but the capital-labour relation will do this, but in the meantime, what you have is di- differentiated jobs. So if there are some jobs with higher returns than other jobs, then there will be people, groups, seeking to monopolise access to those higher paid jobs. That's a basis of race and uh, racialized organising in the uh, workplace. It's also the basis of gender differences and so on. So you see... All of that, all of that taking place. and But uh, most importantly, it's a place where the issue of race is most importantly discussed and most importantly discussed within American sociology and particularly within, within African-American sociology. So Abraham Harris is this, for me, really important figure in uh uh, african-american so- sociologist. he is at howard university he's really sympathetic to uh, marx and he has in common with a lot of other african-american uh, uh, theorists this view that uh, well there's an idea that uh, ultimately american values will overcome uh, american uh, re- you know racism races are uh, looking back that's part of the myrdal uh uh, an American dilemma that uh, it's there in Parsons, it's there in Jeffrey Alexander, you see it's a, a, a continuous theme. And obviously African Americans say, well, actually, American values are why we're treated <laughs> in this way, Race is built into them. So their second statement is to say, uh, well, maybe r- class can be the universal language, we can have relationship, universal relations, across the divisions of class. But all the time, the argument is, and it's there in Du Bois as well, it's black workers who are ex- asked to accept uh, the penalty while waiting for white workers to catch up. And, of course, white workers never catch up, never join in that uh, class uh, project. Eventually, African-American sociologists start to challenge that way of uh, of approaching class. And Abraham Harris is at the heart of that, the first person really to set it out, and to set it out by saying, it's there in Marx. The problem is Marx's tightly coupled theory of uh, class. Once you recognize that class is not so tightly coupled, then you see Colonialism affects relations between white and other workers, and that you need a much more race-centered consciousness of what is going on related to to mm-hmm. colonialism. So nothing there is unsympathetic to Marx. It's saying, well, take the problem that Marx was trying to solve and look. It isn't a solution of that problem, so we've got to step outside of it. Writers like Harris are a way of stepping outside it, and Du Bois mm. has made that uh, similar argument, has gone through the same steps.
2: That was amazing. Both of you, thank you so much for addressing the Marxist.
3: People
1: use that word all the yeah, time labels. now. Yeah, labels, yeah, 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 yeah marxist chat
2: but usually for like culture war type things yeah, yeah. um mm. anyway that was those were really really great explanations of how you yeah are sympathetic and also like you're talking about the merits of marxism but also thinking about that time of when marx is writing and the emissions and how we can develop it and learn learn from other thinkers that have contributed in that way just to end the show and thinking about what you've both just said about Marx is thinking about civil society and thinking about civil society now. Um, we obviously have a variety of or multiple crises. Um, one of the things we've been talking on the show over the past, uh, over the summer in particular, is sort of reflecting on the past year. You refer to Black Lives Matter at the beginning of the book. You refer to people, yeah, asserting um, self-determination and what that means or the continuation of self-determination the continuation of collective grief protest and i guess for us like we constantly feel like we're we're trying to engage with those on the left but often it feels difficult and troubling because of things that John just spoke about because of the lack of taking seriously how race um impacts how we talk about class all these types of things so very big big sort of conversation um, to have to end on but John you were talking about in our pre-chat about the government changes to or reviewing the human rights act and then thinking about when we spoke to Gaminda a year ago, it was the middle of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and um, Gaminda was saying to us or explaining to us we have to think about how we do this work in the context of us not necessarily seeing the benefits of the work or the pushing back we're seeing. So thinking about sort of that, those wise words from Gaminda but also what John was saying about the way the government um, are projecting and enforcing authoritarian authoritarian capitalism. Where do we go from here, basically? (laughs) Big ones, big ones, but just sort of lots of wise words that we've had from you guys over the past year. And yeah, just trying to channel them.
3: Well, we were talking about this because the paradox is that uh, the government is using the language of identities and is actually mobilising a culture war about identities and making whiteness an identity within the uh, culture war is making arguments about post-race, post-class. And if you think in the context of what we're arguing in the book, and I'll use the example of uh, Marx. Marx was interested in a post-class society. That is, a society which could not understand itself in terms of class relationships. That's what it would mean for emancipation. In a sense, we would wish Race to have the same character, we would live in a post race class because actually it was human values rather than issues of exclusion that governed us. The government is mobilizing, well, we're post race now. And there's lots of things in the press of uh, uh, people saying, well, let's not fall into the trap of ident- of identity politics. Well, how do you avoid the trap of identity politics? And I think how you avoid the trap about identity politics is by looking at the consequences of identity politics and addressing what its consequences are. Its consequences are reproduced inequalities. So begin from inequalities, always focus on the inequalities and redressing the inequalities. The... Ident- if the identities are bound up in the inequalities, solving the inequalities will address the, uh, you know, will address the things you wish to address. But what the government wishes to do is use the language of post race in the context of inequality, and rather than address their language of post race directly, because after all, we want a post race society. Mm-hmm. So you're in that conundrum. Instead attack what they're trying to suppress, the very real inequalities, show those inequalities and organise to tackle those inequalities. There's no way you can tackle issues of poverty except tackling it for everybody who's experiencing them, whether they're white, uh, black, you know, South Asian, you know, and so on.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I would only echo that because in a sense, I think it's thinking about what is politics for? What are we hoping to achieve through what it is that we're investing our time in? And the only politics that it's worth investing in is an inclusive politics that seeks to make a difference to the lives of everybody and thinking about the ways in which inequalities are structured and if we can address those inequalities that actually determine the quality of life and the life chances of the people who are suffering as a consequence of particular types of inequalities, then we're also going to be addressing those constituencies that we might also be sort of particularly attached to and so on. So it's only by having an inclusive politics that we can address the inequalities that have been produced by the exclusive politics of the past. So, if we rec- you know, so in that sense, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. Like it's not that complicated to think that the inequalities that exist in the present are a consequence often of colonial histories and legacies. They can be addressed, but they can't be addressed using the tactics of those who produce those inequalities. They have to be addressed inclusively. And so we can, we can do both. We can have a critique that acknowledges what produces us in the present. And we can think about a politics beyond that. And that's the thing that I feel is missing a little bit.
2: I think Gaminda gets a Siren Society mic drop for yeah, that. Sorry, John, you were in the running, but Gaminda gets it. Gaminda gets it.
3: <laughs> so I, I, I've got the silver. Yeah. You've got
2: the silver. A mic
3: tap. Caminda, yeah. Your mic you tap. A mic tap, but Caminda gets
2: the full <laughs> mic drop. You'll
3: never enter for the silver. <laughs> <laughs>
2: John and Gaminda, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, that was incredible. My mind's blown. You know what?
1: I I could just sit there and listen to both of you all day. I could honestly, constantly.
2: I just want to sit and watch them talk about society. (laughs) The fact that you were having a conversation about what I just asked you about this morning, I'm like, can you adopt me? (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Um, you so much for inviting us. No problem at all. Listeners, thank you also for joining us, of course. And we'll see you again next week.
1: See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Sean and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon.
1: If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.